We've spent five full nights and days together practicing. Having consciously made the effort to withdraw, to go on retreat, come to a place that's conducive for reflection, interday, a limitation, what could be called a temple. You notice contemplate has temple, template, the old temples, some of the old sacred places designated for the work of returning to the sacred, or a template, even a, a mark on the ground marked by, who knows, stones, trees, later walls and things. But one steps into the temple. Maybe at first is excited, I'm in the temple, I'm in the temple. Been wanting to come to the temple. At dawn, but then as it gets maybe through the day, getting a bit hungry or restless, wanting something to happen. But in committing oneself to stay within the temple, one will notice the enthusiasm. Yes, I'm dedicating my life to the spiritual path. What they had, life, future lives, (laughs) countless future lives. Then that starts to wear thin. (laughs) And I can't take another second. (laughs) But we stay within the temple, the template, the silence, the practice, the returning to the way it is, These are all limitations that in this case we're choosing the ancient meaning of religion, religere, to ligere, bind oneself, limit oneself, not just for the sake of racking up points or torturing oneself, but within the limitation of stepping into the temple and staying with the moods that want us to go this way and that way, we noticed, as Tanisra was quoting Master Xinhua, instead of us turning, thinking, oh, I wanted to go to the temple, but now I don't want to go to the temple, (laughs) we stay and we watch those moods arise and shift. We watch them turn.
and we recognize a deeper part of our being. When we're stuck on conditions, when we won't, I won't. We just it seems like freedom. I'm free to do what I want, Kitty saw. That's true. Good point. But if every time I won't comes, you're free to do what you want, sounds to me like you might be a slave. Under the spell of. Compelled by. So this conscious surrendering to a template, to a religious practice, can just be a rite in a ritual, but it can, in the ancient wisdom of it, it can be a practice that then reveals, reveals the nature of mind, reveals what we take to be me, reveals how that can lead, as we've been reflecting, to stress. As was laid out for us so beautifully, the four ennobling truths. when we surrender to a limitation and suffering arises, if we at the first moment just run away, we don't have the opportunity to get to know suffering. What we immediately assume is bad and turn away from, we concretize that, make it more solid, reify it, so to speak. If little by little we learn actually to reframe encouraged by these handful of leaves, these essential principles. Now this dukkha, whether it's that dukkha-dukkha, that pain, in the back, the pain of aging, sickness, death, joints, overheated, whether it's the emotional pains, not getting what we want, being with what we don't want, being separated from what we cherish and love. We have this opportunity to open to it. What we open to, then there's the possibility of recognizing what's happening here, what's feeding this, what's perpetuating this. And there's that opportunity to recognize that second truth, that that which keeps feeding the distress, the wanting and not wanting, the grasping, the identifying. It should be this way. Wanting and not wanting, the becoming, the views. The opportunity to reflect on that ennobling truth that uh, this, this grasping can be relinquished, it can be let be, it can be let go, and there's that possibility of tasting that third ennobling truth, the peace, the cessation.
opportunity uh, in, within these structures that we're choosing to use to reveal these religious structures, templates, can help be mirrors. Within that we can cultivate this path. So after five days and nights I feel uh, really in your presence with our wonderful team, having the chance to meet you in such beautiful and honest sharing as each of you speaks from the silence to reflect on how it's going. I touched and encouraged. And though it is challenging, yes, it's challenging. There's a massive metabolization, if that's even a word, going on. They say the trees are the lungs of the planet, which we uh, overlook. That's a lot of lumber there. Write up how much it might be worth. But the trees are breathing in what we breathe out, and what they breathe out, we breathe in. And they're purifying our atmosphere. Just standing there rooted down into the ground. Similarly, our teachers uh, used to encourage us. We might not look like much is going over, over here. Yeah, they're up there at that place, sitting on their butts. You see them walking around a bit in a stupor. Yeah, back and forth. Yeah, yeah, mumbling something about enlightenment. Maybe it doesn't look like much, but there's a lot going on. It's not easy to be with what you, your tendencies don't want you to be with. And the moments of patience, the moments of reflection with desire and aversion and the dullness and exhaustion and the agitation and the worry and the remorse and the, the affliction we all know of the doubts. Why am I doing this? But to stay put and cultivate a sense of Consciousness, to stay in touch, activates, deepens qualities of the heart that aren't visible to the eye, but they're visible to the heart. We're cultivating what's called balamita, what's called these these virtues that are that are in become part of our subtle being, where we're becoming more capable of being real, of being human, not being knocked off balance by every impulse, then there's the possibility of reflecting and having the freedom to choose what to say or not say, do or not do. As we know living in this country, when people impulsively just blurt out stuff, it's difficult. (laughs) When we blurt out stuff, And we do things impulsively. And we all have that capacity to do things impulsively. I used to be a prison chaplain and would uh, meet people that are still in there years later because of a moment's rage. And then they 
picked up something and killed their friend, feeling terrible about it. But we all have this capacity. But to really pause and, as our teacher would say, you know, it doesn't look like much, but when you're a meditator like this, you're walking into the hurricane. But we're guided by the ancients, by the wise ones. And little by little, this metabolizing happens. And so just like the trees, meditators, we're, we're purifying, metabolizing all these energies that are afflictions. The Buddha put it like this. Enraptured with lust, enraged with anger, blinded by delusion, overwhelmed with mind ensnared. People aim at their own ruin, at the ruin of others, at the ruin of both, and they experience mental pain and grief. But if lust, anger, and delusion are given up, One aims neither at one's own ruin, nor at the ruin of others, nor at the ruin of both. And they experience no mental pain and grief. Thus is Nibbana, visible in this life, immediate, inviting, attractive, to be experienced by each wise being for themselves. Cessation of greed, of hatred, and of delusion, said the Buddha, is the unformed, the unconditioned, the undying. In a moment, when there's a cessation of this compulsive grasping and rejection, and this deluded sense that this stuff belongs to me. In a moment when that really ceases, we recognize what's been here all along. The heart itself. This luminous heart. In this practice, as we've gathered through our moments of presence, some steadiness, and don't be intimidated by the thought that says, "Yeah, yeah, 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 yeah kitties are steadiness." But you know, my my samadhi. Look at them; they're sitting like a rock. Like a mountain, what could I ever know? Our teacher used to tell us, look, if you've got the samadhi to read a book, you can still be enlightened. Why didn't you tell us, Kitty Sarah, so we don't have to go through all this? Wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm still not saying it's a bad thing to cultivate more steadiness. That's good. But if we have the idea that we've got to get to some big height before then we can find the box with our 
Vipassana sword in it. Ajahn Chah would say, you know, sometimes even if we don't have much samadhi, if we have enough and something's hurting, we're suffering, we go, hey, nah, what's that? He would say, oh, let's say it's a pain in the back. What's that? Oh. And we notice we have a pain in the back and we think it shouldn't be there. You're ruining my retreat. I did those treatments before. I don't know if I'm going back to that guy again. Can't believe it. It's why did it ever come now? And you know, hey, you recognize that aversion, that second arrow that Tanisra was mentioning. We all, whether we're a Buddha, a king, a queen, a pauper, poor, rich, powerful, weak good or bad, experience pain. That's that first arrow. That's the dukkha dukkha of being born. But that second arrow, it shouldn't be. Even if we don't have deep, deep samadhi, if we recognize that, ah, just, it's like this. It's painful, Okay. There's a lot, oftentimes, much more pain in the aversion to the pain than there is in the pain itself. I've studied this a lot, having had chronic pain and illness for years. And in a moment, in a moment of letting something be, we can notice that that we were carrying a boulder, we were wrestling a boulder, we were pushing on that feeling and letting it be. Don't put cessation too far away. The Buddha talked about two roots that we need to understand so that our efforts are not in vain. Why is it that the Buddha was pondering out loud in in a discourse from the northern school of Buddhism, brought to us by a Chinese master, uh, the Sharangama Sutra, the Buddha is reflecting, why do people practice hard and don't get results? What's, what's going on? Don't get the results they wanted. He realized they don't understand the two roots. The first root was the root of beginningless birth and death. Beginning, beginningless birth in the sense of finding stability in something and then losing it and then seeking again. Endlessly, a samsara. And the Buddha realized that first root is this mind that takes conditions to be me. This mind that grabs on to. That takes it to be me. A mind that doesn't contemplate. 
when praise comes. It's so nice to be appreciated. Oh, Kitty Sorrow, that was a... I don't have words for it. That talk was... I mean, I don't even have words. It was a wonderful talk. Then you get... If you don't contemplate... Oh, yeah. Finally, made it. And then... You know, you're giving a talk and you're noticing one leaves, two leaves. (laughs) People avoid you. (laughs) Praise and blame. The the Buddha called them the worldly winds. But it seems so solid. Talk. A good talk. And, you know... A bad talk, you know. Tanisha and I, we and other Dharma teachers laugh about this. Sometimes at the end of a talk, you know, you, I felt suicidal. <laughs> you know, like I do not deserve to live. That was terrible. You should be ashamed of yourself. And then, you know, gradually I would reflect. Oh, Kitty Saw, did you tell people to commit suicide? <laughs> N- no. Did you tell people to try to be good and patient and... Yes. (laughs) What is this? But but these feelings... Bad talk. (laughs) What's going on? This magic key that even the modicum of, of samadhi... which we have, that we should employ frequently, is to, in the present moment, recognize anicca. Nicca means permanent. A, the prefix a, means not. Not permanent. To recognize something changing. Like even right now, whatever you think of the Dhamma talk, as we actually get close to the Dhamma talk, the Dhamma talk, sounds like a noun. What's it made up of? These sounds, and they vibrate, and lots of holes. <coughs> Words, and phrases. Our language is, can be so misleading. Just the grammar of language with, with nouns. It's useful for communication, communicating. But if we believe that the language reflects the nature of reality, th- then we imagine, we project, we, that's what sankara is, we create things. So, f- success, oh yeah. And we climb onto it, that's called birth. And when we climb onto success, good Tama talk, or success in whatever, and we enjoy it, which is natural, but if there's no contemplation, if we're enchanted, intoxicated, then we, this, we, that's called birth, bhava. Then it, when it shifts, that's called aging and death. It's like sitting on a chair that's not very stable. 
We're imagining. And when I was really tired, I used to look for things to lean on for years. I, when I had to lie down, if I had to go somewhere, I would, if I had to be up, I would lean on things. I couldn't stand for long. Lean on a car. Talking to someone, if someone drives that car off, <laughs> we fall down. We lean on pleasant feeling. We lean on success. We lean on praise. And then as that changes, lean on the good states. As that changes, we wobble. The root of beginningless birth and death is the mind that takes it to be mine. It's my body, my strength, my health, my success, my failure my dreadful Dhamma talk that deserves execution. (laughs) And the second root, the two roots that need to be understood, is that beginningless, primal essence of consciousness, which... the primal bright essence of consciousness that can bring forth all conditions. Because of conditions, you consider it to be lost. Living beings lose sight of the original brightness. Therefore, though they use it to the end of their days, they are unaware of it. And without intending, they enter the various destinies. When we grab at conditions that are actually changing, we lose touch with this original brightness. We imagine ourselves to be happy or successful or whatever, but that keeps shifting so we don't find stability or security. In that same discourse, the Buddha goes on to speak further about this. Why do you, to the disciples, us, why do you continue to take something moving, like, like your body or the environment, to be in substantial existence? So that from the beginning to the end, your every thought is subject to birth and death beginning and ending. You have lost your true nature and conduct yourself in upside-down ways, having lost touch with the true nature of mind. You recognize objects as yourself, and therefore you cling to the turning of the revolving wheel. That's that wheel of endless becoming, endless samsara. And I'll repeat that statement that I made earlier in the retreat, quoting the Buddha, when he says, the primary misconception about the mind and body is the false view that the mind dwells inside the body. You do not know, he says, that the physical body, as well as the mountains, the rivers, empty space, and the great earth, are all within the wonderful, bright, true mind. 
all this stuff that's happening. The Dhamma talk, your body, the sense of how the retreat's going, this building right now is registering in awareness, in the mind. Finally, the Buddha says, it is like ignoring hundreds of thousands of clear, pure seas and taking notice of only a single bubble, seeing it as the entire ocean. So we're taking a bubble to be the whole sea and we do not recognize the true mind. When we're lost in a mood, in compulsive thought, in any kind of thought that's telling us who I am, who you are, who they are, how we are, that seems so compelling. It seems like reality. The Buddha said that's like taking a bubble to be the whole sea. It can seem like the whole sea. It can seem like reality so that we think seems so impossible. Depending on what our mind is telling us, we can take our own life. We can feel it so hopeless or lash out at someone else. that taking a bubble to be the whole ocean is when the mind is contracted. The breakthrough, the way out, the way back to notice this original brightness that we're using all the time but we overlook it is that recognition of change. Dara gave a beautiful talk on the Four Ennobling Truths that was recounting the Buddha's first sermon. At the end of that talk, his first, the first disciple got it, had a breakthrough. At the ending of the talk, the Buddha saw that one of the five ascetics the ones, remember, that abandoned him when he took that real risky move of accepting the milk rice from Sujata. After the Buddha became the Buddha and was awakened, he thought, who will understand? So he, he made his way. He saw where those ascetics were. When he was approaching, they saw, oh, there's the slacker coming. We won't do anything special for him. He was a friend, so we'll let him sit down, but we won't do anything special. But when he came, he was so serene, so powerful, they, they couldn't help. They, they, they kind of made a place. But then he said, look, I've realized the deathless, let me teach you, and that was too much. They, 
They say, hey, look, you're a slacker. (laughs) Or something like that. And he said, three times he said it, and they just said, look, you you took the way of, you know, luxury. Milk rice from a girl. (laughs) And then he said something that was so skillful. He said, have I ever talked this way before? And one thing they knew about Siddhartha, he did not lie. Have I ever talked this way before? They listened to him. And he gave the talk on the four ennobling truths. And at the end, he recognized one of them, got it, and he said, Kandanyo knows. Kandanya knows. And you know, what did he know? What arises, ceases. And you might think, well, they must have cut out something because (laughs) everybody knows that. Yes, okay, intellectually, question and error, question, multiple choice questions, we probably would all get hundreds. Does your body get older? We'd probably have to say, well, yeah. Is my bank balance impermanent? We probably would have to say yes. Is the is it always midday? <laughs> we probably say no. We get that, but it's the Buddha talked like that. <coughs> Even a finger snap of noticing something that's there and gone has such power. And when we realize that all that arises ceases, sight, sound, smell, taste, bodily sensations, thoughts, images, circumstances, is all vibrating, shifting, becoming otherwise. As Tanisra was mentioning last night, when that starts to come home, we recognize that what we thought so much was so real, so solid, even though the words are saying, this is good, this is me, this is mine, when we really notice that something is becoming otherwise, that nibbida, that disenchantment is another way of defining it. The the spell is broken, disenchant, a fading. That's the beginning of the great return, thinking that all the good stuff is out there. There's the return and noticing the heart. And in all that arises ceases when there, remember from that early quote, when there's really letting go of greed and hatred, And delusion, that is the unconditioned. The timeless reveals itself. Kandanya's Dhamma eye opened. He touched Nibbana. He later, in a discourse, in uh, another, in this Shurangama Sutra, told about an image that helped him when he was listening to the Buddha. 
the image that helped him. The image came to him of a host and a guest. In terms of a, like, a, like an inn. The guest comes in, maybe has a meal, stays a night or two, but goes on. The guest is that which does not remain. The host remains. The guest comes and goes. So we have the image of the guest and then dust. Guest dust. He saw a light beam coming through the crack in the wall. Or a crack through the forest of the leaves and he saw the dust dancing in the light. He says, the nature of dust, it's to dance, it's to move. But the light and the space remains, is unmoving. Guest dust. Guest comes and goes. The Dhamma talks are guests. Feeling things going well is a guest. Pain in the back maybe seems like a permanent residence, but it's actually a guest. It's something that wells up and shifts, is vibrating in consciousness. What remains? This third truth. Touching into the timeless. That which remains, which is always here and now. The Buddha compared our heart to a sky. This mind is sky-like. a beautiful teaching in the Dhammapada, one of the collections of pithy utterances, refers to this sky-like mind. It goes, there, there are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. Worldly beings delight in conceptual proliferation. Buddhas delight in the ending of that. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. There are no eternal conditioned things. Buddhas never waver. We project the, the wise ones out there somewhere, the sacred stuff somewhere else. 
worldlings delight in conceptual proliferation. When we, when we have thoughts, it's called papancha, thoughts that are painted, touched with this delusion. And the simplest one is just the thought I. It's just a sound I or me. That's a powerful sound. Me. But when there's a me, if we imagine, well, I mean, language, it says it's me, it's, it's in here, then immediately that creates a you. And in here is an out there. So you just have one little mark that is assumed to refer to something substantial, to, to a me. Then there's the complications come quick. Then we get assailed by it. Me and you and here and there and this. And because of change, we then have to create time to account for that. It's complicated. (laughs) Buddha's delight in the ending of that. Yet the Buddha spoke. He used language to communicate, but he wasn't fooled by language. So in our monastic life, we, we've learned how to cultivate this practice of nipapanja. And the Buddha encouraged us to, yes, we use language, but also train ourselves not just to delight in complexity and comparing and who's better and who's worse and who I really like and who I don't, but to also notice the nature of every thought is to keep dissolving. It's a bubble. Bursting back into this empty vastness, luminous vastness of the heart. To train ourselves also to mind that gap. We did whole retreats just on minding the gap. As Denisha was mentioning on the subways, that's scary, you know. Mind the gap means, you know, don't, don't fall in there. We jumped in, metaphorically speaking. That space after a thought, the space before the next thought. Thinking an ordinary thought like, I am sitting Letting that thought vibrate and noticing the space around the thought. Just as we were noticing the space around the forms. When we're fixated on objects that we take to be so real, we contract. But there would be no forms without space. Without space, no forms. Without silence, no sound. Without awareness, there's no experience. So just as space is the form, so we notice forms, but also noticing these forms come and go within this spaciousness 
and sounds of liking and not liking and it's good and it's bad happen within this vast listening silence. When one of the early disciples of the Buddha who was, became a great disciple, very determined, his name's Anuruddha, before his awakening, he already had some pretty good samadhi going. And he was foremost in the divine eye. He, in other words, he could, he could see what others couldn't see. But he was struggling a little bit, so he went to the Sariputra, the Buddha's chief disciple of most wisdom, who was already enlightened. <coughs> the wisest of the disciples. And he said, uh, friend, Sariputra, with my divine eye, I can see the thousand world system. My energy is not sluggish. My mindfulness is not shaken. My body is, is calm. I'm concentrated. But I still suffer. And Sariputra said to him, Friend, that thought that your divine eye is foremost and can see the thousand worlds that's connected to your conceit. That you energy is unsluggish, your mindfulness is unshaken, your body's calm, your mind is concentrated. That's connected to your restlessness. That you still suffer Perceptions connected to your anxiety. Sariputra said to him, it would be well if you just abandoned those qualities and turned your mind to the deathless. Sometimes if we're making effort and we, he was together but he still wanted more. There was still something to do. The Buddha compared that to cooking sand and hoping to get a good meal or in Zen they talk about polishing a brick hoping to get a mirror. The nature of conditions because they're always changing, never gets perfect. If we're just focused on the forms, on the energy, on the... And this is 
really applicable to all of us. The Buddha said this peace is always here and now, that Nibbana is always here and now. When Sariputra, there was some humor there when he said, that's connected to your conceit. He meant, you know, to your sense of self, my divine I and my samadhi, and I'm doing it right, and, you know, I don't run into things, I'm mindful. He said, just let that be and turn your mind to the deathless. The sounds come and go. The sensations vibrate. What if we turn our mind to that which remains? Because actually all conditions are like lightning flashes, the Buddha said. We might think they're substantial. I mean, they are. They're something. But we can't catch it. But if we relax, we'll see those lightning flashes. We can let the change, just like the dust dancing, but we'll notice that deep, fathomless, dark sky. The lightning's flashing. The sky is unmoving, resting in that ground, letting every sound return to the silence. We can practice noticing the ending of things. Not being so preoccupied with the forms, but noticing the silence after sound. The silence before and after a thought. Learning to rest even for moments in that silent knowing Tanisar defined the prajna before the intellectual knowing that puts a pattern on something. That's me. That's an affliction. Ajahn Sumedho said, the kindest thing we can do for someone else is not to fix them with our thought. And we say, they're that kind of person. They're that kind of person. Not only to someone else, that's what we do to ourselves. So we can practice even welcoming, slowly, the different opinions we have about ourselves and others and notice them vibrate in the mind like bubbles. 
and get a sense for that unmoving, sky-like place, placeless place where every sound dissolves, a place of infinite potentiality. When there's delusion and we're grabbing at something, then we're leaning on a condition so it's going to be wobbly. And we practice patiently opening to it, practicing letting be, letting go. But even just conceptually understanding that in letting be, letting go, we're resting back into this ground of being, ground of the mind, that primal, original brightness, that place where all things come together. We might be afraid, oh, wow, if I just let things go, what what will I be? An enlightened doorknob? People will say, oh, yeah, Joe, yeah, he got, he broke through a couple years back. He doesn't say much. He just sort of sits there. In fact, he hasn't moved for days. And we worry, golly, where's this heading? But what really heartens me in this practice is our, is our teacher who is just so fluid. He could be fierce. He could be funny. He could just be like a master conductor of an orchestra. But he told us, don't be afraid. He said, it's, as you do this practice of letting go, you become like one of these big gongs. It might not look like it does much. In fact, if you're too clever, you might think, it's a bit of wasted space there. (laughs) You know? In fact, I could keep my notes in there. And a clock, but you've got to have an extra clock because one might break, it might break. And uh, then where would you be? You're going to be stuffing stuff in that bell, in that gong extra jumpers and blankets and clocks and and then when you know somebody comes to strike it is kind of like <laughs> kind of clunk it doesn't it doesn't resonate but our teacher said when when the bell is empty when we're present listening something just touches it. We can resonate. If it's beautiful, we can recognize the beauty in a person, in nature, 
in a circumstance we then can resonate with that beauty, sympathize with it. There's suffering. We can resonate with it, breathe through it, respond. And like that empty bell, we realize whatever is happening, even however traumatic that's coming and going at the depth of that peace is stillness that's not born and not dying. I encourage us to stay with this practice. To trust that the, just like that Lord Buddha when the disciples were doubtful, when he said, have you ever talked like this before? Why would the saints and sages lie? I'm so happy that I met someone like Lumpa Cha and Master Hua and colleagues in this wonderful Sangha and listened and then dared to list, dared to stay with it, which is challenging, but it's a suffering that's not wasted, a suffering that leads to the ending of suffering. an activity that is blameless and fruitful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.